listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast in which we explore issues and policies that are relevant to Goldstein and also to our nation. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Claire Wright, OAM, is an American-Australian historian, author and broadcaster. She's a professor of history at La Trobe University and was the winner of the 2014 Stella Prize. In 2020, Claire was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia in the Australia Day Honours for services to literature and to historical research. And she's the author of four works of history, including the best-selling The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka and You Daughters of Freedom, which comprise the first two instalments of her Democracy Trilogy. Claire spent much of her professional career uncovering and celebrating the history of Vida Goldstein, the woman that our electorate is named after. Hi, Claire. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Zoe. It's great to be here. Now, this is a really fun chat and it's so interesting. As I said, our electorate is named in honour of Vida Goldstein. Can you tell us a bit about her and the place she holds in Australian history? Okay, so the the confusing part of that for me, the tricky bit is, can I tell you a bit about her? Because I could spend the next <laughs> three hours telling you about her. Uh, Vida Goldstein was an extraordinary woman. She was born in 1869 uh, in the Western District of Victoria. Her mother was part of the landed Squatocracy down in the Portland region, part of the very influential Hawkins family. So they were Presbyterians, landowning, well-educated family. Vida's father, where she gets her uh, unusual Jewish name from, Goldstein, uh, was a a, um, immigrant, um, gold rush immigrant from from Poland, uh, so his his family had been Pol- Polish freedom fighters and had gone to Australia via Ireland, and but he never really practiced his religion in any way. And Vida was certainly raised Scotch Presbyterian. She went to PLC in Melbourne. She was very well educated. She would have been expected to um, join the the um, social, she had all the social graces. She was tall. She was beautiful. She was elegant. She was well-spoken, much like yourself, Zoe. And she was able to command a room in any any place that she was. In fact, she attracted the attention of a young John Monash who wanted to court her. But Vida turned down all um, proposals uh, because what she wanted to do more than anything was work for the betterment of all women and children. And she felt that if she was a married woman with children herself, she wouldn't be able to dedicate herself to that very vital political cause, which, and we're talking here now by the end of the 19th century, was a huge global issue. It was really the moral question of the times was what was known then as the woman question, a bit like we now can say that the climate crisis is the moral question of our times. Kevin Rudd said that, didn't he? before he changed his mind. And it really was a, a, 
a, a situation in which the whole world was grappling for an answer to that question of women proclaiming their rights, their citizenship rights, their civil rights, and in particular, their suffrage rights, their ability to vote, which at that stage, no woman in the world had. And Vida was very much part, um, as the leader of the Australian suffrage movement in Australia, becoming the first place in the world where women had full political equality with men. That's the right to vote and the right to stand for federal parliament. Now, I should qualify that and say white women because Indigenous women didn't get those rights, although they did have them in a couple of states. They didn't get that right federally. And in fact, the same Act of Parliament, the Franchise Act, that gave Australian women those world-leading rights actually disenfranchised all Indigenous people. And Vida certainly wasn't fighting for the rights of her Indigenous sisters at home although she was very influential in the movement to fight for the rights of American women and British women um, to, get, to get their citizenship rights in those countries that were decades behind Australia. I just want to unpick this a bit, Claire. So I want to go to the nuts and bolts of what happened. But first, just in regard to Vida and who she was, what do you think it was in her upbringing or background or experiences that triggered her to be so motivated for this cause. Do we have any information that can inform that? We absolutely do. We know exactly what the influence was, and that influence was her mother, Isabella Hawkins. So although she was this landed squatocracy, um, very, um, uh, came from this very kind of you know, elite and privileged background, she was a feminist, and she was part of the late 19th century world feminist movement. And one of the things that she was, in fact, herself doing was trying to improve the conditions for working class women. And one of the things that Vida's mother did was to go into the slums of Carlton and Fitzroy and Brunswick and Collingwood here in Melbourne and and trying to, to see how women actually lived. Because this was the thing about the vote and, and about the call for the vote. It wasn't just some sort of abstract political right. It wasn't just a social justice kind of, um, you know, a jewel in the crown of a kind of social justice campaign. The vote held the key to being able to unlock the problems that so many women experienced on a daily level, from poverty to domestic violence to um, their discrimination in all sorts of areas of employment. I mean, we're talking at a time where Really, women, if you were um, uneducated, you could go into domestic service. And if you were educated, you could be a governess um, and maybe just starting to get into nursing. Well, some women, in fact, Vida herself did this, opened their own schools and, and they started to educate other girls. But the, the employment opportunities were so few and far between. Women didn't have legal rights. They didn't have custody of their own children. On marriage, all of their property transferred to their husbands. They had no independent legal identity. And it was the vote that was the key to women being able to change the conditions of their daily lives from those very basics of survival, um, economic survival, to women who wanted more economic um, security, but also professional advancement and educational advancement. So right through the social scale. It was the vote that was the key to that. And so Vida followed her mother into the slums of Melbourne and she saw the way that women were, were living. She saw the conditions under which they toiled. 
She saw them living in these squalid conditions, raising too many children uh, and often having husbands who were either out of work. We're talking the 1890s now, so the Depression here in Melbourne, men who were out of work, men who were despondent, men who were spending all of the family income on alcohol or gambling. And these were the, both the social evils, but the also, well, I'm using that social evils, they would have been called at the time, I'm using that in quotation marks, that, that these um, women who are often temperance um, advocates as well, suffrage campaigners were often temperance advocates, as Vida was herself, the Goldstein family were exclusively teetotal. And, and so they were claiming a role for women in being able to clean up the world. They wanted to take women's household roles, their role, their, 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 what was at the time seen as their God-given role, but socially their, certainly their socially ordained role as housekeepers um, and see them as being, literally they call themselves this, that women could be the housekeepers of the world, that, that women would do political housekeeping in the way that they did domestic housekeeping and that if they had political power, they would be able to clean up the world the mess that men had made of it, including military messes, including the sewer and the corruption and the venality that was politics, um, and that women would be able to have a, a purifying effect both on politics and on homes if they were only able to get some political power themselves. And so Vida saw this firsthand and she wanted to use all of the skills and the advantages and the privileges that she had to be able to make a difference in the world. So Vida managed to get herself into all sorts of amazing rooms uh, and get herself a seat at all sorts of extraordinary tables in this change that she helped to bring about. Just tell us a bit about what she actually got up to. Okay, so Vida became the um, acknowledged leader of the Australian suffrage movement. In 1894, South Australian women became the first in the world to have the right not only to vote but also to stand for parliament. New Zealand women had won that right in 1893. But mind you, New Zealand wasn't a country. It wasn't an independent commonwealth. It was a colony of Britain in the same way that South Australia was. So there was no difference in them in, in, to that extent. So South Australia became the next British colony to get those rights but went one better um, and gave women the right to stand for Parliament as well. And so that then became the gold standard. Um, and South Australian women pushed to have that to be part of the new Federated Australia uh, that, of course, we know happened in 1901. And it was written into the Constitution that no Australian women could lose any of the rights that they already had. So basically, women's suffrage was a precondition for a Federated Australia. And this made Australia literally, and this was called this, I'm quoting from sources at the time, Australia was the envy of the world. Imagine if we could still say that, Zoe. Imagine if we had social policies <laughs> that, that meant that we could still say that we were the envy of the world. But this was the fact at the time. And so, so Vida Goldstein, as the leader of this movement, then became a very wanted woman in other places where um, they were also trying to, to find solutions to this woman problem. And the first opportunity that Vida had for that was in 1902, when she was invited to represent Australia and New Zealand at the first International Women's Suffrage Conference, which happened to be in Washington, D.C. 
So Vida went over there to represent our nation and um, Australasia, it was called then at the time, Australia and New Zealand. And she was fated by everybody, including, as it turns out, the President of the United States, who at the time was Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who was um, pro-suffrage himself, but um, fighting an uphill battle in the United States. And so he invited Vida to come and meet with him um, in the Oval Office. And as far as I have been able to gather, and I've consulted a lot of other sources um, and experts on Australian democracy um, on this as well, Vida was the first Australian ever to meet with an American president in the Oval Office. And he invited her there because he wanted to, and this is Teddy Roosevelt's words, he wanted to see what one of these new enfranchised women looked like. Because there were all of these kinds of prophecies of doom that were part of the anti-suffrage movement about what would happen, this kind of the sky will fall if we give women the vote. You know, I I remember when we were going through the marriage equality, um, should we call them debates, whatever horrible nastiness was going on then, Um, and a lot of those same arguments were trotted out against marriage equality that were trotted out against women's suffrage you know, that it would be the end of the family, that it would be the end of, um, a, a, of the social values as, as we knew them. And then there was also, with women, this um, whole piece about that they would become manly, that, that having the vote would unsex them, that they would no longer want to become mothers, that they would become harridans and shrews and start wearing men's clothing and lose all of their feminine graces. So Teddy Roosevelt wanted to see whether this was true. He wanted to see whether this woman from Australia had like grown horns or a, or a second head or, you know, was some, now some kind of circus freak uh, because she was able to, to go to the ballot box once every three years and cast her vote. And so he was very delighted to discover that that wasn't the case. Um, in fact, he pumped her hand up and down and he said, I'm delighted to meet you. I've got my eye on you down there in Australia. Again, when was the last time an American president said that? Um, so, and then she went on a national speaking tour of the United States that had to be extended by three months because she was in such demand. And, and her speeches, her exploits um, were reported all over America and around the world, so much so that she gained a reputation with the English suffragettes and Emmeline Pankhurst invited her to come over and speak as part of the British suffragette movement. Now, we often conf- conflate these terms suffragist and suffragette. But bear in mind, there is a, quite an extreme difference. Australia didn't have suffragettes. Uh, suffragettes were the part of the militant suffrage movement in Britain that took those um, tactics that we're, we're, in some ways we're much more familiar with because we've seen them in movies and Mary Poppins and the suffragette movie that came out a couple of years ago, you know, the smashing windows and, and um, setting fire to post boxes and chaining themselves. It was actually an Australian woman, Muriel Matters, who led the chain-up movement, chaining themselves to things, being imprisoned, being force-fed. That was all part of the, the suffragette movement that um, was, was the Women's Social and Political Union led by Emmeline Pankhurst. But Vida was recruited by them to come over to England in 1911 and to be part of that movement to kind of energise, you know, she was kind of the, oh, you know, a, a sporting analogy. Vida Goldstein was kind of the Ron Barassi of, of suffrage, you know, like she was able to give the half-time speeches. She was the rah, rah, stick them in a jar. You know, you can do this, ladies, you just have to give 110% and we've done it in Australia and you can follow in our footsteps and and she gave them a lot of tactics and 
and a lot of moral support and she spoke in front of tens of thousands of people in packed out houses at, 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 um, uh, in, in theatres uh, all across England and was really kind of a superstar. It was Vida Goldstein and Nellie Melba were the two Australians who were the best known Australians around the world at the time. And, and you know, we remember Nellie Melba, but to me it's just an absolute um, crying shame and a disgrace actually that we don't remember Vida Goldstein in the same way. Fortunately, she now has your electorate. Um, well, hopefully it will be your electorate shortly. She now has the electorate of, of Goldstein named after her. That took until 1984. We still have no statue of her. There's a, a little plaque um, in, that's hidden out the back in the private grounds of Victorian Parliament House. And there's a bench um, that is in, in Portland, her hometown, um, when that was erected a few years ago, one wag said, well, at least Vida Goldstein now has a seat. And, and that was a reference to the <laughs> fact that she stood for Parliament five times. She lost every time, and that's because she stood as an independent. Vida Goldstein was also extremely suspicious of, critical of, antagonistic toward party politics. She felt that no, no woman would ever be well served by party politics, that no women's agenda would ever be taken seriously, that if, the, that if a woman was recruited into party politics, she would only ever be able to, to vote along a party ticket and, and that men would never be able to privilege um, women's issues and women's concerns above and beyond uh, their own other limited interests. And so she ran as an independent and, um, and to her political peril because had she run for uh, the Labor Party, which was at the time probably most closely aligned with her politics, um, because she was a protectionist, not a free trader. Uh, there's there's probably no doubt that she would have that she would have won and um, and become the first woman in the world to sit in Parliament. It, it's an extraordinary story, and I just like I'm sitting here listening to you, and I sort of harking back to that push for women to get the vote in order to elevate women's issues into the national context. And it, it occurs to me that although we've come a long way, plainly since Vida's days of being this absolute juggernaut, there's a lot of work still left to do with the fact that we have the vote as women, but we still don't have equal representation in the parliament to actually implement the sorts of policies or to elevate the issues of women to the degree that perhaps they need to be, uh, which is obviously one of the reasons I'm sitting here having this conversation with you. How, how would we um, project, do you think, what Vida might think of the state of Australian politics today? Look, on the one hand, I think that she would be, uh, she would be astounded to see how far we've come in roughly 100 years. I mean, no women of Vida's age ever envisioned that there might be a female prime minister, for example. Uh, the fact that we've had one of those, even though she was appallingly treated, um, would really, you know, those, those suffrage era women, their heads would spin to think that a woman could actually be the leader of government. I mean, they weren't even really envisaging that women would be in parliament. And the fact that, uh, that South Australian women won those rights actually was by um, a kind of massive political belly flop on the part of a conservative politician who was trying to sink the suffrage bill. So he included a, at the last minute an amendment um, to give women the right to sit in parliament because no, he didn't think anybody would vote for that. Nobody was asking for that. Um, the the 
uh, non-conservative parties weren't asking for that and women weren't asking for that. So that was not something that was that was ever really imagined. I think that Vida would be um, w- would find that extraordinary. I think that the fact that women are visible in so many um, uh, places and their voices are heard in so many aspects of public discourse would also be uh, certainly something that she would relish, but but is um, um, probably something that she wouldn't have imagined either. The things that if Ida was could just sort of time travel and be here today, I think would be very distressing to her, as they are to many historians who um, who have you know studied this uh, phenomenon widely. Is the fact that we are still fighting for so many of exactly the same issues that Ida and her compatriots were. So equal pay being one of them. I mean, we still don't have equal pay. We you know we have an almost fourteen percent um, pay gap. So women's um, economic security, uh, women's body sovereignty. I mean, one of the things that women of that era were fighting for was women having the ability to have some autonomy over their own bodies. Now, at that point in time, they were talking about the ability to control their family sizes uh, because women of that era were still having um, up to 12 children. And although family sizes were starting to decline a bit by the end of the 19th century, it was still not uncommon for women to have families of 10 to 12 children. And part of that was that women had no legal rights within marriage. Uh, they could still be legally beaten. They could still be legally raped within marriage. And there, weren't, there was an access to contraception um, that was uh, freely available, safe, and um, and if you weren't of a particular social class, absolutely impossible to get onto. And, you know, we're still, t- and also, as, as I mentioned um, earlier, the fact that uh, domestic violence was an issue that that Vida and, and her compatriots were highlighting at the time. Now, you know, clearly these are still questions that are, that, that we're only starting to scrape the surface of in terms of finding solutions to. We know we have a domestic violence crisis in our country that has only been exacerbated by COVID. We are watching this very day that we're speaking, the fact that the, in America, the Supreme Court may very well be overturning Roe versus Wade and women's constitutional right to an abortion. So these rights that women for generations have fought for, for women to have some control over their own bodies, some body sovereignty, uh, these rights are being clawed back as we speak. And we might be in a position, certainly American women might be in a position, that that women who fought for those rights, their granddaughters are going to have to fight for them all over again. And, you know, this is... This is um, it's actually, it's unbearable. I mean, really, it's disgraceful, but it's just untenable. It's unbearable to think about that. So I think that if Ida was here today, she would, she would on the one hand, um, revel in, in the, the steps that have been taken, which, you know, that, that we can take for granted that on the 21st of May, all women are going to be able to rock up to a polling booth and cast their vote. Um, and we're not going to have to put up with the sort of foolish arguments about, oh, women will only vote along the lines that their husbands vote or they will only vote for the most handsome candidate. I mean, these are the, this is the kind of nonsense that was put up at the time. Um, and, um, but, you know, we, we are still seeing, I mean, your campaign and, and the campaigns of other independents um, who are, are, are fighting in these very prominent seats against um, 
against uh, male incumbents are being accused of being fake independents and puppets of of larger interests. Uh, you know, it's not such a long bow to draw back to uh, those arguments against giving women women the vote in the first place that they are somehow not credible in their own right, that they don't have um, true independence of thought, that they aren't autonomous political um, beings. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of essentially sexist dog whistling is still very prevalent in our political discourse today. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's incredibly important to know our history and to know our stories and to understand the battles that that political women have fought, uh, both to have a role in politics and to have a political voice and to be political candidates, so that we can understand both how far we've come but and also understand the tactics that have had to be fought against and um, and to get some kind of solace and some strength from our collective history as women. And I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, we don't know our history, why our history is kept from us in school curriculums and it's kept from us um, in the publishing world and it's kept from us in popular forms. I mean, why hasn't there been a biopic of Vida Goldstein made? She was one of the most important politicians of her age, whether she held office or not. And, you know, we get we get biopics and, and documentaries and blah, blah, blah about male politicians all the time, male sporting heroes. You know, you can just look at, look at our TV guys and they're full of, of, of male protagonists, but we don't get these stories of female triumph and tragedy in the past. And that does keep us at arm's length from our collective history. And there is an agenda behind that. Well, Claire, thank you for helping to illuminate Vida's story today. I sit proudly here in Goldstein having this conversation with you and we very much hope to continue Vida's legacy on May 21. So I'll say V for victory, V for Vida Goldstein, let's go. Claire Wright, historian, joining us on Find Your Voice. Thank you, Claire. Um, thank you for stepping up to the plate. It's a, a huge commitment um, and um, all of my fingers and toes across for you on the 21st of May. Thank you so much, Claire Wright, amazing historian telling us the story of Vida Goldstein, the namesake of the seat of Goldstein from which I join you and the seat for which I hope you'll vote for me on the 21st of May. Next week on the podcast, we'll be discussing the climate economy with a panel of experts who are working and advocating for nationwide renewable energy. Thanks for joining us on Find Your Voice. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria. 